Welcome to the X Millennial Man Podcast, podcast for CDSing.com. I am your host, Artie Kulik, and with he, with me here today after striking against my brutal, brutal working conditions and making a deal for 0.2% of the residuals now is uh, the greatest other host, Ty. How are you today, Ty? Hi, everybody. I feel like a scab because I <laughs> wrote, even during the writer's strike, I wrote stuff, but I wrote a lot about the writer's strike, so... Well, what are you gonna do? to be fair, and a lot of what we're going to talk about here is the internet has never been figured into the writers or any mm-hmm. writer thing. So, yes, we are talking about the writer strike, but not the one that just just completed the 2023 mm-hmm. writer strike. And I want to say up top, I'm shocked that they got what they got, and I'm happy that they got what yeah. they got. It's I it's think good that they got what they got. Yeah, when we look at look back at this particular strike and what how it set the stage for the future. This was a big victory. Hmm. But what I want to talk to you about is the last writer's strike, the 2007-2008 writer's strike, and talk about how it set the stage for what we see today, but mostly the projects, not that we just lost, but how certain some of our favorite TV shows, movies, stuff like that, were completely changed due to this writer's strike. And hopefully at the end, you're all going to realize how effing important writers are. Writers are very important. I mean, all the stuff that, all these lines that we remember, like, Here's looking at you, kid, and Rosebud. And that was all written by writers. That Mm -hmm. didn't just come from most of those people didn't write that stuff. So for people to think writers aren't important, that's asinine to me. And I applaud the writers for holding out as long as they did and getting all that they did, because this is a great step for them and a great step for you. Yeah. And still, as we record this, the uh, SAG-AFTRA, the actors are still striking. So here's hoping they get what they want. But did you see that Tom Hanks AI Tom Hanks. Oh, yeah. And Tom Hanks himself. Came. That is terrifying. Yeah. No, that's this is where we are. And again, I'll talk a little bit more about this at the end about how what the writers got really helped for the future. But I want to go back to this 07 writer's strike because we know the effect it had. We still don't know the effect the current writer's strike had. We still don't know what projects were lost or we know what projects were delayed. A lot of projects were heavily mm-hmm. delayed. But 07, I'm going to tell you, Ty, I, I'm going to give you a little bit of background, but I'm also going to tell you in 07, they did not win the strike. <laughs> and people may disagree with me, but there were three main issues I'll go through. Now, so everybody knows every the uh, Writers Guild of America has a three-year contract with all the big movie studios. It's always the contract's always based on something called an MBA, a minimum basic agreement. So basically any movie that is being made or television show that uses a WGA, they have to abide by these minimum standards. And like the current one was the number of writers in the room, things like that. Mm -hmm. So in 07, and like I said, every three years they renegotiate these deals. And sometimes something comes up that there's an impasse and then the writers will strike like they did in 07. So there were three main issues that the 2007 writer strike was. The first was DVD residuals. At the time, I think it was 2003 when DVDs finally surpassed VHS tapes for um, the most like used media or something like that, how people would watch movies and TV at home. You got to remember, too, in with VHS tapes, there were never like uh, full TV shows on VHS tapes, whereas DVDs, you could get seasons of The Simpsons. I know my mm-hmm. wife watched the first season of 24 on DVD. Lost, which is a show we're going to be talking about here. A lot of these shows found life on DVD. That's how I watched uh, all of Breaking Bad up to the final season and completed The Wire was through DVD. At the time, writers would get a really, really small percentage of VHSs, uh, really small, like uh, what they called residuals. And residuals are is money that you get for something that's already been created. So as people continue to to uh, watch it or to consume it. And these are very important to writers because writers, it's not a nine to five job. Sometimes you're not working for months on end. So those residuals yep. are important. Well, DVDs, like I said, covered a much bigger thing. And they, they fell underneath the same deal that VHS tapes were. So writers were seeing their work being consumed 10 times more, but they're still getting the same amount. So that was the first thing they wanted to do is they wanted to to change the calculation to up the amount of money that they got from the residuals on DVDs. They did not get that in oh, the strike. The strike ended without that. That's a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, think about the, the amount of money that they, I mean, again, I watched, I think there was what, six seasons of Breaking Bad mm-hmm. and I watched the first five on DVD. I believe there was either five or six seasons of The Wire which is one of the greatest shows of all time. And I watched all of that on DVD. Yeah. 
yeah. and those writers got nothing from it. No. And then another big piece was they wanted to bring uh, they wanted to bring reality and animation writers under the WGA. Now, there's going to be a lot of heroes here that we're going to be like, wow, that person was a hero. And there's going to be some villains here that you're going to like, that person was a villain. I'll tell you right now, the biggest hero on this part was Seth MacFarlane, the creator really? of Family Guy. Yeah, he was huge on this issue. The show Family Guy, it's produced a certain amount of episodes, but they're still short of Fox's regular um, complement of shows. And McFarlane walked off, even though technically animation writers were not covered by the WGA, but he said they should be. And he was out there picketing. He was very, very strong, even to the point that Fox made those last three shows without him. And boy, was he pissed. (laughs) I I would be, too. That's his creation. That's his baby. But he was very, very big on braining them. And then reality shows, even though they're quote unquote reality. I was going to say, you said reality TV show writers, and that's just that's oxymoronic. Yeah. Well, when the strike ended, nothing happened. Reality and animation was not brought in. That's not cool. That stinks. And these CEOs and studio heads are, they're not good people. No, no. <laughs> Except for A24 in the last strike, because they paid everybody. This strike lasted for 99 days. The strike actually started November 5th, 2007. and went to February 12th, 2008. It lasted, like I said, just under 100 days. And the one thing they did get, and this was kind of the really, really important part of this, all right, is new media. Now, this is, you got to remember, Ty, this is 2007. Yeah. And you're seeing things like the iTunes Store, Amazon Video On Demand. The whole idea of streaming is first coming into the uh, public conscious. You also have Mm -hmm. YouTube and stuff like that. So there was this idea that they they wanted to protect the writers from streaming. They saw what was happening with DVDs, and they wanted to make sure that the studios did not use the concept of the internet in order to screw writers even more. And the biggest champion of this was a, a gentleman. He had directed the movie Scary. He directed Scary Movie 3, or he was a writer-director of Scary Movie 3. Okay. He also was the writer of Scary Movie 4. Okay. He also wrote Hanover Part 2. And Hanover Part 3. So all the bad ones. His name is Craig Mazin. Do you know who Craig Mazin is? The name is incredibly familiar to me. Why do I know that name? He also wrote Chernobyl and The Last of Us. Oh, okay. That name makes sense. That dude directed Scary Movie 3 and 4 and Hangover 2 and 3. He wrote. He only only directed. Yeah, he wrote. And he wrote. Last of Us? Yes. I've never seen Chernobyl, but I've heard it's a great show. It says here, too, he has an uncredited rewrite on Dune Part 2 coming out. So Nice. Okay. <laughs> Craig Mazin, though, obviously is a guy who's very, very successful now. And mm-hmm. I've heard a couple of other people talk about how he's a little right-leaning, but he was big on this strike, saying that the new media is the one issue that totally matters. And something I'm going to really, really give to Craig Mazin is video game voiceover actors are not part of the union. Yet when he made uh-huh. The Last of Us, all the people that did the voices in the games were in this show. Yeah. The woman who did Ellie's voice actually is the woman who gives birth to Ellie in the show. Yeah. And um, the guy that does believe, Joel's voice. Somebody, oh, go ahead. No, I, I, no I, I thought somebody who did the voice, like, isn't there a voice actor from the video game who died, but they dedicated an episode to her? Who played the voice of, like, Pedro Pascal's partner when the yeah, I think so, happened yeah. in that? And then I know the the voice of Joel, the main character, is the right hand man of the religious zealot weirdo guy. Oh no way! <laughs> yes, I didn't know that. yes. Yeah. <laughs> wow. But I think it was great that uh, Mason brought those people in because he was able to give them screen credit so they could get health insurance and stuff like that. And Even I kn- the little deaf kid doesn't didn't he do or is he just in that i thought because i know no no he didn't do any voices he was brought in though they auditioned for that i i recommend to everybody if you watch that show they do a great podcast they did after every episode Uh and the episode on that that. where they talked about him is absolutely amazing i mean really really great but craig mazin he's early in his career but he said the number one issue is this new media thing and to the credit to him and everybody, this is something the WGA won on in 2008. They didn't get everything they wanted, but basically what they did forced Netflix and all those places that were starting to make their own TV shows, Apple, they had to abide by this MBA, which means all of those shows had to bring in WGA writers. Okay. So that was a big deal. Yeah. That, that was, I mean, to be able to see 
16 years ago that streaming was going to be a big idea, a big a big deal. That was smart on his behalf. Yeah, so because I've heard people kind of mock and make fun of Craig Mazin, but at least it seems like he had some good intentions with this stuff. No, he he did, and it did. It set the stage for what we see today. Whereas the newer strike, a lot of it was about these writers not getting their fair share because. Mm-hmm. Netflix and Apple and all of them will not share their uh, the numbers of people who watch this stuff. And they were able to get some concessions on that f- moving forward with streaming. Uh, I mean, give them a lot of credit. Now, having said that, we're recording this a couple of days after uh, Mean Girl Day, where he's like yeah, the day. October 3rd is Mean Girl Day. Yeah, and what whoever, WB or whoever, took Mean Girls and broke it up into like 30-second pieces and put it out on TikTok. And so the whole what? movie was out. Yeah, the whole movie's out on TikTok. And Ugh. basically, you don't have to pay the writers anything for that. So in three years, get ready to hear about that with the next strike. <laughs> well, yeah, because I heard also with while this writer sh- this current writer strike was going on, I remember Suits for some reason had a huge like blow up, and people were watching it on Netflix. And they said with all the streaming, you know, it's been streamed X amount of times. I think with like thirty some odd writers, they had to split. I, it was some minuscule number, like a thousand dollars. They had to split between thirty writers, yeah. and it was the most stream show on Netflix at the time. Yeah, That's and they they did the, crazy. To yeah, me. the WGA that was a big win for them in this current strike. But yeah. it's the the setup for that happened with the with this 0708 strike. So let's talk about a few villains, Ty. Okay. Outside of the studios because the studios are always the villains, they're always the easy villains out there. But and this saddens me in a lot of ways. One of the big deals going into this, so this happened starting in November of 2007, is you had all your big talk shows. At the time, Stephen Colbert was still on Comedy Central. Uh, You had uh, Jon Stewart was still doing The Daily Show. There was Conan O'Brien, Jay Leno. uh, I think Jimmy Kimmel had started his show by now. The presidential election was ramping up. You were We were getting through the primaries and coming into 2008, we were going to start getting... The, or we were going through the debates coming into 2008, we'd be getting into the primaries. Yeah. And that's where these shows made their bread and butter. With the presidential election coming up, these shows really wanted to be on the air. Mm-hmm. Now, to David Letterman's credit, and he had another show connected with his, it might have been uh, Craig Ferguson or somebody. That Letter- sounds right. Yeah, Letterman owns his show. Own His production okay. company owns the show. He made a deal with the writers and gave them what they wanted. So okay. his show was able to have, so he's not a villain, obviously, he's still a hero, but Letterman and Ferguson were able to have their writer, have guild writers do the show because Letterman gave them what they wanted. He was the A24 of 0708 yes. straight. But NBC, they own the late show with, uh, with, uh, uh, what's his name? The car dude. Uh, like, Jay Lena. Yeah, Jay Lena. And they own the late, the later show or whatever with Conan O'Brien. Mm-hmm. Conan O'Brien and Jay Leno went back on the air with no WGA writers. Uh, Jay Leno, it makes sense because yeah. he seems like the type of guy who just wants money. That bums me out that Conan went back on because he, I love Conan O'Brien. Yeah, I, I do too. Do I too. grew up watching Letterman because that's what our dad watched. But when I moved out and moved in with my girlfriend, now wife, we would watch Conan all the time. I didn't know that Conan continued his show during the strike. Now, also, Comedy Central did continue with The Daily Show and did continue with The Colbert Report. But out of solidarity, they called it The Colbert Report and A Daily Show. Okay. And to be fair to all of them, they didn't go until like January. And again, I get it. The presidential election was going on. And yeah. there was this like fake feud between Stephen Colbert and Jon Stewart and Jimmy Kimmel and all of them about who was the better political talk show host. To Even when the strike was over, they all went on one show together and basically squashed their beef, so to say. Uh-huh. But there was I mean, I talk about that because and I think rightfully so there was the whole What's her name? Drew Barrymore was going to go back uh-huh. without writers and just got buried and has continued to uh, get buried. Three of her head writers have not gone back yeah. to her show yet. Also, who's the Bill Marley dude? Yeah, I can't stand him. Yeah. I wish his show would just disappear into the ether. Yeah, well, he was a jack off back in 07, too. But the mm-hmm. two big, big, big villains. Now, at the time, the head of the Writers Guild was this guy by the name of John Wells. John Wells was the guy that took over for Aaron Sorkin on the West Wing. John Wells would cry. He's the head of the union or was a previous head. Mm-hmm. One of the two, I can't remember, but would whine and cry about how terrible the union is. And why, there was this. Why was he the head of it? Though? Yeah, exactly. 
And there was this famous little round table that I think Vanity Fair or somebody put on. And there was a bunch of different uh, writers slash directors on there. And everybody's like, ooh, Aaron Sorkin's a great writer because he wrote You Can't Handle the Truth 30 years ago or whatever. <laughs> I mean, I, I'll save Iconic it. Iconic line. Dude. Yeah, it is. I'll <laughs> save it for an. And look, he wrote the Steve Jobs movie. Outstanding. The good Steve mm-hmm. Jobs movie. Yeah. The I, one I, with Michael Fassbender. Yeah. I will <laughs> say to this day, that Aaron Sorkin, I do think, is a very, very good writer. He's a jack-off of a human being, all right? It's, yeah. And and there's stuff like The West Wing that I think has so poisoned our, our, our view of politics that he's mm-hmm. done. But he he would go – he did in this roundtable to talk about how he's a union guy and his dad was a union guy. But this union is no good because this union, he has to be a part of it. And he's – better than the union and uh, they all have representation they don't have to worry about not knowing that 90 percent of the union doesn't even have health insurance aaron sorkin is going to get paid no matter what now he had some movie he was upset it wasn't going to be in there but let's talk about todd phillips well hold on with with aaron sorkin i don't get it why is it because he's a lot of people don't know writers like a lot of people don't know who writes songs or who does this or that so because he's a well-known writer was he just afraid of losing money? Because you said he was upset that a movie of his wasn't going to come out. So why is he so anti-union when he's considered one of the better writers in, in Hollywood? I don't understand that. Well, like, why is he so against these people going on strike who don't have health insurance, who don't get paid anything? My favorite line in any movie ever, The Dark Knight, when Harvey Dent says, you either die the hero or you live long enough to become the villain. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Okay. He okay. he was a writer. Now he was a big cokehead too and all this other stuff, but he was this big writer. Plus he's a damn boomer. I mean, let's just be honest with it. A lot <laughs> okay. of this is just baby boomer BS, but he was a very, very good writer. He found some very, very big success in a business where there are people who are writing things twice as good as he's written, but they just don't get picked up for one reason or another. So he becomes this, uh, he becomes successful. And he gets okay. to know studio heads and he gets to know people and he looks around and look, unions aren't always great. I'm not going to lie. All right. But sure. he looks around and he sees the corruption and he sees this and he's like, look, I just want to make movies. Why can't you just let me make movies? And he gets this view, this idea of all writers are just like him. They're not. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're not. not. Now, Todd Phillips. Can't stand that. <laughs> I haven't been. I haven't liked him since old school. So. This isn't a new thing for me. No, but he is. I mean, let's let's be honest where it is. I'm going to go down the movies that he has had a either a writing, directing or both on Road Trip, Old School, Starsky and Hutch, Borat, The Hanover, One, Two and Three, Joker, the new Joker that's coming out. He's had a pretty damn good career. All right. Yeah, I mean, I've seen. Pretty much all of those movies that you mentioned, with few exceptions. Like, I've never seen Starchy and Hutch. I haven't seen Hangover 3, but love Borat. Yeah. Love, uh, I, I didn't love, I actually hated Joker, but I understand <laughs> people's love for it. But I even liked, I didn't like him, but I even liked Old School. Yeah, well, he decided to whine and complain while they're doing this roundtable. And even though he was whining and complaining about the writers, he called them the Whiners Guild. He renamed them the Whiners Guild. And saying how they should feel lucky to even be able to write and how they have agents where auto workers don't have agents and their agents can negotiate whatever they need on. He even said at one point, you want three cents more on DVDs, whatever it is. He says this, and I'm sure he knows this, that a large majority of writers do not have agents. Yeah. I, I would assume he has to know that they have you know, the, the union. That's what they have. Exactly. Yeah. The thing with him, with Todd Phillips, if I get is he's like the director's version of Aaron Rodgers. He's the type of guy who, if you'd ask him about the COVID vaccine, he'd say, oh, I'm immunized or whatever. But my biggest problem with him is when Joker came out and people talked to him about shifting from comedy to drama, he said, you can't make comedy anymore because people are just too woke. You got to watch everything and do every. I mean, that's, he can't make comedy anymore because he's not very good at it. Mm-hmm. Like old school was a flash in the pan, I figured. And you go out and you look at movies now, comedy movies that come out now, like a movie like Palm Springs is hilarious. Mm-hmm. So for him to say you can't make comedy, that's just he can't make the racist, homophobic, misogynistic comedy. That no, that's say. that's exactly that's what his is. problem. And I'm going to end this first half tie talking about the shows that essentially survived. Or we're, we're very unaffected and explain why. And in the second half, I'm going to tell you some stories of uh, just 
how we saved certain characters because of the strike and how we got some incredibly what we might not think is good entertainment because of the strike, including okay. robot testicles and things like that. Excuse me? Yeah, yeah. I'll, is that a show? No, no, no. I'll, <laughs> I'll get to that part. But All right. <laughs> here's the biggest thing that grew. Now, I noticed this during the summer, and I think it's very important to know when this strike started. This strike started in November. A lot of scripted TV shows are filming in the summer, at least filming the first half of their seasons. So a lot of shows were able to get a number of episodes put in. This would have affected a lot of second half of seasons. This current, or the writer's strike that just ended, it started in the summer. and. So that means a lot of these scripted shows were not going to be produced at all. And if you notice, just turn on your TV tonight, tomorrow night, whenever, you're going to see five different reality shows. Yep. Now, they're taking some of their streaming shows that have been very popular. I know ABC put Ms. Marvel on and our CBS is putting Yellowstone on. They're taking content they already have, which is fine, but it's a ton of reality shows. Oh, yeah. That's all you see, basically. Yeah. Back in 07, reality shows were, they were big, but not, they didn't take up 90% of the TV. But the strike really helped them grow. The Amazing Race expanded episodes. Big Brother expanded episodes. A lot of game shows started to expand their episodes. And I'm going to end on one that is not going to make any of us happy, but I want to, I don't want to end the whole, the whole show on that one. So I'll just end the first half. A lot of, uh, Soap operas were unaffected because they have scripts being produced constantly, and they did use some scab writers also. But then they do that in the most recent strike yes, too. Yes, soap yeah, operas. Yeah. yeah. So you had those. I talked about all of the talk shows. They part of it out of necessity. They did come back. They, a lot of them would do reruns, but they came back in early January. One famously that did not come back till the writers came back was Saturday Night Live. Oh, okay. So Saturday Night Live, when the strike happened, they were done. They did not come back till the strike was over. Good for them. Yeah, I say you always. uh, What's his name? The guy that runs Saturday Night Live, Lorne Michaels. Yeah, Lorne Michaels. He he may be the most uh, the most James Bond villain esque guy in (laughs) Hollywood, but he seems to. I mean, he seems to care (laughs) at least a a little bit for somebody who's as wealthy and villainous as as he seems to be. But let's talk about one particular quote-unquote reality show okay so at the time there was a little show on tv called the apprentice why why do you have to talk about this guy and it by the time 07 came around there's a lot of talk of canceling the apprentice because it was not doing well in the ratings it's a stupid idea for uh, whatever yeah (laughs) so the uh again we're talking about villains the executive producer of the apprentice mark burnett is also a religious nut job Went to the Is head that the of the guy it. who produced uh, Say by the Bell. Why do I know? No, that? no, no. He produced uh, Survivor or something like that. Oh, okay. You're thinking of someone else, but yeah. So he went to NBC and said, "Hey, I got an idea with the strike going on and da da da. Why don't we get celebrities to Ugh. do The Apprentice?" And the head Ugh. of NBC said, "Oh, Donald Trump will never do that because he doesn't want to be in a room." Oh, by the way, this guy named Donald Trump was the head of The Apprentice, the but... worst person ever. <laughs> they said he doesn't want to be in a room with a bunch of celebrities. And then Mark Burnett said, but he'll be the biggest celebrity because he's the boss. Oh, God. So, How dare you, Mark Burnett? How dare you? <laughs> so the 07 strike gave us the Celebrity Apprentice, which was the most watched version of the show outside of its first season, and introduced Donald Trump to the concept of, well, he can be the boss of anyone. Ugh. I hate it so much. It makes me so mad. <laughs> and as we I all know, weren't so obsessed with Mark. <laughs> and as we all know, everybody hated the show. We never heard from him again, and we all live God. in happiness and dancing in the streets. If only that was the alternate reality that actually happened. The, unfortunately, we got the worst part of that simulation, and that's awful. I hate that so much. And I was having a pretty solid day. And I <laughs> Oh, well, this, here's the thing. Like I said, I was put it there, but we're going to come back and talk about some good things, talk about some just crazy things, and talk about why writers are so damn important. And I want everybody to know before we leave this first half, I'm not blaming the writers for Donald Trump, okay? No. I am fully blaming the studios for that. And Mark Burnett. Hello, all. This is RD. I wanted to talk to you guys about another podcast that I do work on called High Heels in Politics. It's hosted by Marianne Christie, who I work with here in Southwest Ohio. 
And Marianne, she interviews a lot of influential people. In Ohio, she's interviewed uh, a lot of political people that are influential. But for those of you outside of the state, she's also interviewed people like Susie Chapstick Chaffee, a former Olympic skier who was the face of Chapstick for the 1970s and 1980s. It's really interesting to listen to that one because she talks about her struggles as a woman in the Olympics, but then how she used her celebrity and her attractiveness in order to get more rights for amateur athletes, which led us today to things like the NIL. Also, Susie was very instrumental in Title IX, which we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of. But it's not all just seriousness. Uh, Marianne has also interviewed the Naked Cowboy, the New York City icon that's been out there. Simon Lease, who a lot of you may know if you've ever seen The People vs. Larry Flint, he was the guy that arrested Larry Flint. He also arrested Jerry Springer when Jerry Springer was a member of the Cincinnati City Council here. So I encourage you guys go to Spotify, Google, Apple, go search High Heels in Politics, follow, subscribe the show. Marianne comes out with a new one every week, and it's an incredibly great conversation. And if you're interested or know anybody that may be on High Heels in Politics, just go to the contact page and talk to us. So let's get back to the conversation. Okay, Ty, let's talk about the TV show Lost. I love that show. Do you? Yeah, I think I enjoyed the only season I didn't enjoy is the one where you find out about Jack's tattoos and bilingual is in it. I also that's the think, season we're going to talk about. But go oh, ahead. Oh, I was also, and I don't I know people will be like, oh, you're just being a contrarian on, on purpose. But I, I was fine with the way Game of Thrones ended and I'm fine with the way Lost ended. I don't care that they were in purgatory. Have you have you watched Lost again? No, I've only watched it when it was on. I again, speaking of DVDs, I caught up on DVD and then I watched it in real time. When I got caught up, I think I had to watch like maybe the first four, four, was it seven seasons? No, six of that show. Six seasons. Okay. I think I had to watch like the first three or four on DVD and then I was caught. I think the first season of Lost is the second most perfect season of television ever, right behind Eastbound and Down. <laughs> that Eastbound, yeah, Eastbound and Down. We need to do a whole podcast <laughs> yeah. about Eastbound and Down. Eastbound and Down is the most perfect season of television, the first season of that. And the rest of it's great too, but that first season is perfect. It's epic. The first season of Lost is up there for me. Mm -hmm. I agree. I do not hate the second season. Now, you said what a lot of people say is, well, it ended kind of bad. I'm going to tell you because I've rewatched Lost. It's I like the way it ended. Yeah, I actually have no problem with the sixth season. It's the fourth and fifth seasons I have problems with. Which and was the one? Which was the season with Expose? That's season four, and that's the season we're going to talk about. Okay. I do not <laughs> like that episode either. <laughs> So we're going to talk about how the writer's strike affected certain TV shows, movies, and Lost is a great example of this. All right. Now, Lost. So was... wait, you had to ask me twice to say, do you not like Lost? I know oh, no, no, no. I when I w went and I watched it again, it, again, that first season is is uh, it, there's only one better. It is still so okay. good. Even right. the second and the way the third season ends with Charlie dying and all that other stuff. Great. Just so great. I know a lot of people get on that second season, but I think it's really good. The fourth and fifth seasons is where some of the issues are. All right. Sure, I agree with that. And this is where a lot of the weird ass stuff they never explain happens. <laughs> okay. But the fourth, there was so much stuff on that show is going to be hard to explain everything. Yeah. Now the fourth season in particular is the one I want to talk about because that happened during the writer's strike. Okay. And if you look at the first few seasons, they have 20 plus episodes. Fourth season has 14 episodes. Now, okay. after the third season had happened, the studios kind of went to Abrams and Lindehoff and said, is there a point to this show? Do you know where you're going? They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a plan. We have a plan. We're going to do a few more episodes. And this is where this all starts. So okay. originally, there was supposed to be, I think, 16 episodes. And they were writing them. They were shooting them. And they were only able to get the first eight shot before the strike hit. And they, were, they had to rush through. So they were because they knew the strike was coming. They had to rush through it. Yeah. And so that's where you get Jack's tattoos. That's where you so get stupid. expose. That's <laughs> where you, yeah. <laughs> that's where you get all of these things. And then when they came, that was such a waste of Billy D. Williams to put him on that show. Yes, to show expose. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and they introduced a lot of concepts because the this is the rumor that while the strike was going on, that Lindhoff and Abrams would talk about ideas they had, and. They would like, oh, maybe the island can move or maybe it's time travel or maybe it's this. And they've already done the whole flash forward. And they just came yeah. up with all these ideas that they kind of shoved into the show and never fully really fleshed all of them out. 
Okay. And the show is coming off its best viewership ever, and it just cratered. It just it really? was kind of a lot of the, time, the fourth season. Now, another show I do want to talk about, because I think this is very, very important, is The Office. Yeah. So The Office was starting to really come into its own. Do you know which episode of The Office came after the writer's strike? The very first is it, episode. Is it the one after the Super Bowl with the uh, Stanley's heart attack? Or is no. that, I'm just thinking of that. No, no I don't know that. The Dinner Party. Oh, the greatest episode of that TV show <laughs> yeah. ever, including the British version and the American version. That is the best episode of the yes. ever. Yes. Man, they must have been sitting on that. Because yes. that is a genius episode. It is. It is so good. <laughs> and it's written by incredibly talented writers. I mean, oh, yeah. so, so good. Hunter the Hunted. Uh-huh. And it is, I mean, his TV's as big as the computer screen I'm looking at you through. I'm standing there saying, I can just watch TV for hours and hours. Jan throwing a Dundee at the TV. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. So good. 30 Rock did their first live episode. I'm rewatching that right now yeah. with my wife. Their first live episode, yeah. which became part of the show, happened after the yeah. strike. Here's what happens when your show is, you know, writers are on the show. They tend to care. And so when they come back. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to some heroes here. Of all people, Jim Belushi walked off of According to Jim. They were going to bring in scab writers, but he said, no, he's going to. Wow. Okay, maybe he did have some of his brother in him. Yeah, yeah but another show I want to talk about is Breaking Bad. Yeah, I think the second best show of all time behind the wire. Now, Breaking Bad, this was, they were into their first season, and there were supposed to be nine episodes in that first season. And they ended up having seven. Now, a lot of people talk about this story, and they'll say, originally, there's a, an episode, I think, five or six in where Jesse Pinkman gets incredibly Aaron Paul's character gets incredibly beat. He has to go to the hospital and everything. Yeah. They were, he was supposed to die actually in that episode, but they went back and they said, Oh no, he Aaron Paul's really good in this role. We want to keep him around. And so they rewrote it at the time, but in those last two episodes, and I think it's in the seventh episode where Hank Schrader, Dean Norris's character, uh, the brother-in-law. Yeah, the brother-in-law. He's a drug enforcement officer, and he's he, this. He first. It's like in the seventh episode, he first hears about this blue meth, and he's going to start to look uh-huh. into this drug lord Tuca. That's where the season ends, and then we go into the second season of the show. Originally, those two other episodes, Tuca was supposed to kill Hank. Oh, I couldn't imagine that. <laughs> yeah. So the writer strike saved Hank Schrader and spoiler alert people yeah. you know probably one of the most tragic terrible things to happen in at the but it was at the end of the show it was like the yeah, third yeah. to last episode or something <laughs> like that well, we also would have never gotten hank schrader on the toilet finding out who yeah walter that walter white his brother-in-law was was the guy doing it two other shows that kind of the strike really kind of killed their shows overall one was my name is earl oh man that show was Talk about an underrated. That yeah. show was really, really good until it wasn't good near the end. But that show was great when it started. Because they they had written a bunch of scripts knowing, again, the writer's strike was coming. And then it came. And they did have another season. But it's because of the whole big delay of it's new weird. shows not being there, it kind of it kind of ended after that. Another one is the show Pushing Daisies with yeah. uh, Lee Pace. and Oh, uh, I've never watched that, but my wife loves it. Oh, yeah. No, it's a great show. Like, she can't. The girl can't touch him because she'll die, right? And yeah, yeah. He he has the ability. He can. Somebody's died. Lee Pace's character can touch them and they can come back to life. But when they when he touches them again, they'll die. And this girl he yeah. likes, he brings her back, and then he can't. The whole show can't touch it. But it won its first season. It won tons of Emmys. It, it was very yeah, well regarded. It. Brian Fuller, who he did the Hannibal show. So it is a pretty well-received show. It just, it was such a high concept show. The strike hit, there's too much time and people kind of lost interest in it. Yeah. And they, that's something that a strike will definitely kill a show like that because yeah. that's, I imagine with viewership, you have to kind of, you can't take a pause with yeah. something like that. Uh, the show Friday Night Lights. Did you ever watch that show? I did watch that show. Do you read? <laughs> I prefer the book okay. and I prefer the movie. I think the show was, I don't think it's the cultural hit that a lot of people my age make it out to be, but do you remember when Jesse Plemons character killed someone? I sure do. And, and then everybody forgot. It it. That's the strike. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, they I mean, they had enough time to realize that's a dumb storyline. <laughs> they just dropped it. Yeah. And it's 
it was crazy. I remember watching it on Netflix and that happening and being like, okay, well, he's going to get in trouble for this. I understand like he's protecting that girl and everything, but he's going to, and yeah, it just totally went away. Mm -hmm. Like magical. Able to become a kicker on the team that the coach went to coach with uh, Michael B. Jordan as the quarterback. <laughs> yeah. uh, Battlestar Galactica, the, the reboot Battlestar Galactica, which I still personally believe is the best show to ever be made. It's last season was broken apart because of the writer's strike. And man, you can tell because you talk about a show. And again, Ty, I think this is the best TV show ever made. I almost mm-hmm. stopped watching it in its last season. It wow. got so bad. I mean, really so bad. And what was wrong with it? Well, I'm going to talk about this when it comes to movies, but they were trying, they're rushing through scripts in order to get it on air before the strike hit. So you're basically filming first draft scripts and you have long standing characters that are doing things they've never done in the past. Now, a lot of people really hate the ending of Battlestar Galactica. I do not. I actually think it ends really well. And I think after the strike, the last few episodes are strong. They do a very, very good job with it. But man, those episodes they were rushing into, gosh, were they were they just extra terrible? Okay. But this brings me to movies now, okay? Yeah. So I'm curious about this because that was one thing too, you know, I didn't realize until this most recent strike, like I really, really want to see part two like doing part two and that got pushed because of the strike and there was other stuff I I I've been really itching to see. So I didn't this is just me being naive, but I never, when I think of a writer's strike, I only think of television. I don't think of movies. And that's just, that's my problem. Or I didn't think of movies until this recent writer's strike. I talked about Battlestar Galactica and the fact that they had a lot of issues because they were basically filming first drafts. Mm-hmm. They were rushing these through. The exact same thing happened with movies. And the movies I'm going to talk about, except for one, we actually got. And a lot of these movies are part of very famous franchises that a lot of people will point to these being the worst of these franchises. And it goes back to you're talking about movies that are essentially filming without scripts right now. And no matter how good an actor is, they need a good script. Gotta have words. (laughs) We're not making silent movies anymore. So the first one is the James Bond film Quantum of Solace, the second movie with uh, with Daniel oh, Craig. I remember that being really boring. Yeah. And this yeah. was a situation where it was Casino Royale was a big hit. It revived so the good. Bond franchise. And so Again, they, I cannot say it enough on this podcast. Mads Mikkelsen cries. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Which his brother plays one of the main villains in the Ahsoka show, which I know a lot of people are not sold on that show. I thought it was great. I thought it Still ended great. It and I've he was, it. It. and he was really good. <laughs> Just creepy okay. as all, all right. get out. But Quantum of Solace, it, it, there was, it didn't have a script essentially. Yeah. And so that's where a lot of people think it just did not work out. Another one, X-Men origins Wolverine. That movie is <laughs> utter and pure trash. <laughs> I saw it on opening night with my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time and friends of ours. We sat in a packed movie theater in the front row. So to see that movie in a uncomfortable position makes me dis. And I Wolverine is my favorite yeah. superhero character of all time. Cannot stand. I mean, this was a big deal for a lot of reasons. There was a lot of X-Men characters that nobody had seen yet. Charlie most famous was in the movie. Yes. Most famously, <laughs> Deadpool. And yeah. Ryan Reynolds has made it his life's journey to completely make everybody forget about the Deadpool in X-Men Origins Wolverine. Well, and there was, you know, you talk about Friday Night Lights and they had a main character from that playing Gambit in that movie. And they barely used him. And like, yeah. Gambit's a cool character. Yeah. Will I Am was in that movie. Yes, like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it had, had, but it did. It had a first draft of draft of a script, and the studios were Clearly. so held. And by the way, all the movies we're going to talk about underperformed what they were supposed to. So it wasn't a good idea for the studios to put these out. And they got this great Danny Houston plays the villain in that movie. Danny Houston is a well regard, like a well renowned actor. Horrible in that movie. Mm-hmm. Absolutely horrible. In that. Another one, and this is something for people like me that have been waiting a long time. We finally got our live action G.I. Joe movie, G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra. Now, (laughs) isn't Joseph Gordon-Levitt in that? Yes, he is. He plays Cobra (laughs) Commander. And that is part of the issue is so they're they're trying to appease a lot of people here. All right. And they're Mm. trying to make a G.I. Joe movie that's going to appease the fans, but it's going to bring in a new group of people. The problem is they had a script, and if you see the bare bones of that script, you can see some of that G.I. Joe DNA. 
but it, the script wasn't fleshed out. The script wasn't finished. And so they went and found generic action movie 37, put it on top of that script. And that's what it turned into. It's just kind of a, for the fans, we're all like, wait a second, none of this crap makes sense. And for the new people, they're like, what the hell is this movie? It's, I mean, the point Channing Tatum hated it. And, oh, I didn't even know he was in it. Oh, yeah. He plays the main character. He plays Duke okay. and hated it so much that he was under contract for the next one, but made sure they he got his character killed, which is sad because I think I don't think the second one is bad. It's got a freaking ninja fight on the side of a mountain. It's more yeah. of a G.I. <laughs> Joe movie than the first one, but the first one just completely destroyed the franchise. That one I didn't see. Luckily, I didn't see that. Talk about effing professionals. Terminator Salvation was made during the writer's strike. Is that where Christian Bale had his freak out? Yes. Oh, man. <laughs> I never saw that, but of course I heard and saw that freak out I, on, there's, on the internet. Yeah, there's a couple of other ones, like J.J. Uh, Abrams' first Star Trek movie. He kind of complained that he had some good jokes he wanted to put in there. But I they saw had that a, one. I thought it was... I yeah, know your wife hates it. Yeah, I thought, I, it, was I thought it was fine. <laughs> the weirdo Tom Hanks hair movie, Angels and Demons, a follow-up to the Da Vinci Code. Never, I've never seen it, nor have I read any Da Vinci Code. I feel happy about it. <laughs> uh, here's the thing. They were good pop culture moments, but by the time, because they had to wait so long and it was written without a proper script, Angels and Demons, the whole Dan Brown phenomena was gone. Nobody cared anymore. Well, I should say, I've, all, I've never read those. I've never read Twilight. I've never read whatever the hell else is like YA or popular novels that are out there. So I'm going to go back to 30 Rock to tell you the story of this uh, second to last movie, because I'm going to end on a movie that was not made because of the writer's strike. But this movie was made. And there's a joke in a 30 Rock where Liz Lemon's walking by a poster for Transformers 5. And it says on the bottom, written by no one. (laughs) (laughs) Transformers 2, Revenge of the Fallen, was essentially written by nobody. Okay. Now, the first Transformers movie was a hit. And they wanted to. Right. <laughs> I, the first one's <laughs> not bad, like <laughs> but uh, I think it's trash. So they wanted to rush the sequel and go make a lot of money. It's just going to print money. And then the writers' strike hit. Now, there's a lot of things about Revenge of the Fallen that are memorable for all the wrong reasons. And you talk about. I was about, just going to say, if you tell me that Michael Bay is a good good guy in this, no, 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 he he's the one. Michael Michael Bay is a problem with this. He decided that he was going to plug the holes in the script to make this movie. He's not good at what he does. <laughs> now, I'm going to tell you a couple things that are in this movie, okay? One is these two robots who make Jar Jar Binks look like he's the best of race relations. Oh, rough yeah what do, what do they do do they speak in like broken jamaican accents oh like, worse than jar jar and not only that ty they're like broken down jalopy type cars is what they transform uh, into that's horrible so michael bass thought i'm gonna do this urban accent quote unquote with hoopty cars and yes yeah, it's about horrible. as bad as you think it is there's a, there's a very famous Transformer called Devastator that, as a kid, you would buy these five different construction Transformers and it would turn into this huge robot. It's pretty pretty cool. Did you have that? Or maybe somebody I know had that? Uh, yeah, I didn't have familiar. that. Yeah, I didn't have that. I, I was G.I. Joe in Star Wars because they were like half the cost of a Transformer. But uh, okay. But no, so but Devastator is a pretty well-known and everybody said, oh, you're going to see Devastator in this movie. And you very, very briefly see Devastator in this movie. Because what's his name? John Turturro's character is chasing it and it turns into its big mega monster. And again, I said they're construction vehicles. So two of them have the wrecking balls. Those two wrecking balls become the robot's testicles. Oh, gross. That's what you were talking about. Yes. There is a line where John Turturro is talking to the army. He's like, where am I? And he looks up. He's like, I'm right below the robot's testicles. It's like, oh, come on. John Turturro's a renowned actor as well <laughs> transformers is based off of an old stupid cartoon all right yeah and kids were watching it and the thing that powered optimus prime the leader of the good robots was something called the matrix of leadership it sounds stupid but it was for eight-year-olds all yeah, right exactly this entire movie that's supposed to be a huge big budget movie talked about the matrix of leadership and how Shia LaBeouf's character was like as powerful as all the great Matrix of Leadership Transformers or whatever. Point is, it is so incredibly stupid. It sounds pretty bad. 
And the movie still made a billion dollars. Of course it did. <laughs> I mean, that's the problem with Michael Bay. He'll out there, he'll complain about March of the Penguins, but then he makes some crappy movie and it just rakes in the dough. So people are like, oh, we're going to hire Michael Bay again. Now let's talk about the movie we lost. For everybody who listens to this, I didn't do research for this because yeah. I kind of wanted to be surprised by it. Now there's probably a lot of movies we lost, but this is, I think, the most seismic one out there. And I know I've discussed this movie before, but I'm going to talk about it again because, wow. So George Miller was mm-hmm. looking for a movie to do. And some people were out there and we had recently had Batman Begins that had become a big hit. And then there's also Superman Returns, which wasn't the hit they wanted it to be. But everybody, and this is before Avengers, okay? Everybody's talking about, wow, we should have a Batman and Superman movie. And then we could bring in all the other DC heroes. And George Miller came on and there was a script for something called Justice League Mortal. Okay. And the movie starts... With, I think it's, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I I think it's The Flash or whatever. They're all at The Flash's funeral. And the movie's all done, again, by George Miller, okay? Yeah. The whole movie's done in like this flashback of these superheroes at the height of their power. The Flash, um, Common was cast to play the Green Lantern. That would have been cool. There was a DJ Cortana, I think is how you say it, was going to be Superman. I can't remember. These were not super well-known actors, but pretty good. Army Hammer was cast as Batman. Yikes. <laughs> they, they dodged a bullet on that one. And the whole movie was essentially going to be about how, like, the I, I know Jay Baruchel was to play Maxwell Lord, who that's who Pedro Pascal played in the bad Wonder Woman movie. Oh, okay. Yeah. But he was, he, he was, quote unquote, the bad guy. But what he was doing is finding ways to turn all these superheroes against each other. So you're going to have Wonder Woman, Green uh, Green Lantern, Batman, Superman, Flash, all of them essentially fighting against each other. And wow. this script is famously, people have seen it. They've seen it online. And it's it's incredibly cool concepts. Script's not great, though. There's like a scene where the Flash orgasms and phases through his lady or something like that. Oh, so like The Boys. <laughs> Sounds like the, an episode of The Boys. Yes, yes. But again, and this is George from George Miller himself. He just couldn't do the movie because it needed to be rewritten. They had to do rewrites. He also, he wanted to film in Australia and there's some other issues going with that. But he said at the end of the day, I just, I mean, the script wasn't ready and we lost that movie. That bums me out because I, as I've said on here, you and I have talked about it. We've even done an early podcast. You're, you're the DC guy. I'm the MCU Mm -hmm. guy. I would have liked to have seen this movie, but maybe not being able to make this movie gave us what I consider to be the greatest movie of all time. What I think you do as well as Fury Road. It did. So, so maybe that, <laughs> yeah. that's the silver lining through all this, but I love, see, that's why I like a show like the boys. Cause it shows you the bad side or I love a movie like Logan. Cause it shows you what Wolverine's adamantium claws could actually do to somebody. And the idea of George Miller directing that song, I mean, George Miller can do anything from Mad Max to Babe, so I think he can handle superheroes still. And at the end of the day, like George Miller left at the time, and there was a couple of other people, including Joss Whedon and some people they were looking at to revive the movie. After the writer's strike hit, though, or after the writer's strike was over, movies were being put back into production. That following summer, The Dark Knight came out. Oh, and that was it. So there, good. That was it for Justice League Mortal. <laughs> just said, yeah. okay, we're we're done with that. Famously, they all teamed up again in the most seminal classic superhero film ever, Batman v Superman. So, <laughs> well, I like to say that some of them teamed up in a uh, um, Peacemaker. Yes, <laughs> when when they showed up at the end of the first, spoiler alert for people who haven't watched that show yet, which you should watch that show. So. Yeah, absolutely. So there, I believe Peacemaker made it through James Gunn's cuts too. Yes, it did. Nice. Yes, it did. So there it is, Ty. That is what we what happened, what changed, how to I didn't even talk about the show Heroes who left yeah. a left a girl in the future, in a terrible future, because the writers are like, ah, forget about it. Well, it's funny too, because I've never seen that show, but you mention it to me all the time. My wife loves it. Anybody who I know has seen it said they love it. The first season. But only the first season. Yes. Yeah, I was say, <laughs> yeah. Only the first season yeah. of that show. Yeah. And everything else after that they say is really bad. It is. It is. Even to the point of Kristen Bell's characters, right around when the the Nissan Rogue came out, and okay. it Kristen was Bell's on that show. Why? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. She's like because Hayden Panettiere's the cheerleader. Yes. Right? Yeah. The, oh, oh, so I didn't know that they were both on that show. Oh yeah. But there's a whole scene where no, I think it was Hayden Panettiere. I think it was the one where her dad like she's like, oh, you bought me a Nissan Rogue. I love the Nissan Rogue. It handles so well. It's like the Canyon Arrow from The Simpsons. 
And I remember watching uh-huh. this going, all right, that's it. This is this is done. And that was before the writer's <laughs> strike left a poor Irish girl in a terrible future. But those were, hey, but at the end of the day, Ty, we do get <laughs> the dinner party from the office. We uh-huh. we yeah, get these I mean, writers it seems flex like their muscles. Much better. They did. And and we'll probably years from now revisit what had happened in this later later latest uh-huh. writer's strike. It's the difference I think we're looking at between the one in 07, 08 now is the actors were not on strike in 07. I mean, they stood in solidarity and stuff like that. But I mean, Daniel Craig still had to act like James Bond with no skit. And John Turturro had to pretend like he was under robot testicles. And (laughs) those are two great actors. And those might be we might look at those as some of the darker moments, but might be some of their best moments ever in hindsight. Danny Danny Houston in X-Men Origins Wolverine. Yeah. Yeah, he was really good in that. And Ryan Reynolds. (laughs) Well, Danny Houston's a good actor, but he had nothing to work with. No, that movie's awful. That movie Uh is so awful. (laughs) But you know what? Next summer, we're going to get Hugh Jackman and Ryan Reynolds to fix all that. In the yellow Wolverine costume, (laughs) which I can't wait to see. All right, Ty. Well, they got to find you to help punch up some rewrites on Deadpool 3 or Dune or Transformers 5, famously made by no writers. Where are they going to find you? Yeah, please do. And also, I hope this us two guys who don't work in the industry talk. I hope people realize how important writers are from listening to this. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram, Ty Kulik, T-Y-K-U-L-I-K, all lowercase. Speaking of writing, come read my stuff on SeedSing, S-E-E-D-S-I-N-G.com. I've been doing bunch of pop culture stuff. I will say starting next week, I'm going to be doing basketball preview because the NBA season is right around the corner. Again, check that out. Seed Sing, S-E-E-D-S-I-N-G.com. You can hear me on Chucklehead Chat, hosted by my buddy Glenn Adams. I'm actually in my calendar. I'll be doing another episode with him very soon. So you'll be able to hear that wherever you get podcasts. But most importantly, listen to me on this podcast, the Ex-Millennial Man podcast. Rate, review us. Check out our Patreon. Check out First Watch Rewatch. I really enjoy doing that podcast. It's a lot of fun for me. And always Black Lives Matter. Yeah, repeat all that. Seed saying ex-millennial man. I am very happy with the with the outreach we've had with First Watch Rewatch. I've been posting them over on our feed here too, which I think helps. But people are reaching out and I already got a couple. I got three like people I don't know saying, are you going to at least do a horror movie for October Yes, we are, but it's uh, mm-hmm. we you and I have talked about it all, <laughs> yeah. But it's uh, all I can say about that one is we're gonna talk about the bodies hitting the floor, so well, uh, <laughs> well <laughs> but that'll be coming at you. That's the first and 15th of every month. And with all that being said, we thank you for your ears. Anything else that you may use to listen to the Ex Millennial Man podcast, remember, we are here every Saturday for free wherever you find your fine podcasting shows. And with that being said, I think we finally broke the heat tie. So enjoy the the three weeks of fall that we get here in the Midwest. You do as well. Stay fresh, cheese bags. The Ex-Millennial Man Podcast is a production of SeedSing.com, fully owned by R.D. Kulik & Associates, LLC. Producers Ty Kulik and Ryan Kulik, adequately engineered by Ryan Kulik.